That's one of the reasons that it was easy to believe that she really didn't do this because, you know, just getting to know her over those years, and I got her to got to know her very well. It just became so obvious that she really didn't do this. That was Lisa Benice, author of Fear of Our Father, a book that details one woman's horrifying memories of abuse at the hands of an alcoholic father. The woman's father and mother would be killed on the same date, 15 years apart, and two of the couple's children were accused of murdering them. One went to prison and the other didn't. That story is coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll discuss the September 10, 2003 murder of Marilyn Cananan, whose body would later be found underneath a rock garden on her daughter's property near Orlando. Marilyn went missing 15 years to the day that her husband went missing. His remains would be discovered buried underneath his garage. The couple had three children, all of whom told tales of extreme abuse at the hands of their father. In the end, the couple's son was convicted of murdering both of his parents, and his younger sister was acquitted of her mother's murder. My special guest for that segment will be author Lisa Benice, who collaborated on a book with Stacy Kananen, the woman who was acquitted of murder. Coming up, an update on a case I profiled on this podcast in November. Three people have been charged with first-degree murder in the slang of a good Samaritan who was fatally shot while helping a man pull a car out of a ditch. I've been a cop for 32 years. This is one of the most heinous, despicable, cowardly acts that I've ever witnessed. And it's also probably one of the greatest pieces of police work that I've ever witnessed in my career. That was Volusia County Sheriff Mike Chitwood during a media conference Thursday. Chitwood announced the arrest of three people in connection with the November 11, 2017 slang of Carlos Cruz Echeverria, who was shot and killed while helping someone get a vehicle out of a ditch just down the road from where he lived. At first, the fatal shooting seemed to be a case of someone being killed for his truck. Instead, according to the sheriff's office, the evidence shows that the 60-year-old victim was targeted in a murder-for-hire plot. The suspects are Kelsey McFoley, Benjamin Bascom, and Melissa Rios Roquet. All of them have been charged with first-degree murder. Cruz Echeverria was weeks away from giving a sworn deposition in a road rage case against McFoley. And according to law enforcement, McFoley hired Bascom to assassinate Cruz Echeverria. The third suspect, Rios Roquet, is in a romantic relationship with McFoley. She, according to the sheriff's office, assisted Bascom in staking out the victim. Cruz Echeverria, a U.S. Army veteran, was killed the evening of Veterans Day 
at the intersection of Malaga Avenue and Puritan Street in Deltona, which was within walking distance of his home. Deltona is located on the west end of Volusia County. It's the county's most populated city and a suburb of Orlando. The entire saga began May 2nd, 2017. Here is Chitwood discussing how Cruz, Echeverria, and McFoley met each other. Uh, when Carlos was uh, involved in a road rage incident with uh, our suspect there, Kelsey McFoley. Extensive criminal history, uh, real thug of thugs, but a coward. He gets involved in a road rage incident with McFoley. McFoley reaches into his glove box and points a gun and threatens to shoot Carlos. Carlos backs up, gets the tag number, notifies law enforcement. Volusia County detectives pick up the job. On June 1st, we arrest McFoley for possession of a firearm by a convicted felon, uh, aggravated assault for a slew of charges. On December 7th, Cruz Echeverria was scheduled to give his sworn deposition in the road rage case. He was murdered 26 days before that date. A court filing last October disclosed the victim's address. Authorities said McFoley, a known heroin dealer, hired Bascom, a business associate of his, to hunt down and kill Cruz Echeverria. Here is Volusia County Sheriff's Captain Brian Henderson describing the shooting. The, the main purpose for the, the vehicle that was stuck, they, they were actually stalking um, the victim. They were, they were there to, to murder him. Um, it just so happens that they, they got stuck in the ditch, um, and it just so happens that the, the kind-heartedness of our victim stopped to help them, and the stars aligned, unfortunately, and here he is trying to help them, which was a stolen car. Um, and they were prepared to burn the car and ultimately shoot him as he's actually bending down in the ditch to get this car out of the ditch. So he didn't even see it coming. The victim was found lying near the disabled vehicle that was still stuck in the grass along the road. Here is a portion of a 911 call from the man who first discovered the body. 911, where's your emergency? Um, right down the street from Malaga Avenue. Okay. What there's, city a is that in? There's, there's a car pulled off the side of the road, and there's uh -huh. somebody laying in the ditch there, right alongside it. Okay, I see where you're talking about now. All right. Can you tell if they're conscious at all? I can't tell. I didn't want to go near. I understand. Can you tell me what kind of car is pulled off to the side? Uh, not really. He's wearing yellow. I can tell you that much. Does it look like his car wrecked? I can't tell. Well, his, the hood is, the, the trunk is open and the uh, passenger door is open. Bascom, the alleged gunman, was said to be linked to the disabled vehicle through DNA evidence. Authorities also said the car that he drove into the ditch and left behind after shooting the victim was actually stolen out of Orange County. Deputies said phone record data from two crime scenes, the area of the shooting and also the area in Apopka, where the victim's stolen truck was later found, also went a long way to charging Bascom with murder. According to the sheriff's office, his cell phone was in use in both Deltona and Apopka during the time frame of the incidents. Apopka is another suburb of Orlando. The third suspect, Rios Roque, 
assisted Bascom during the planning stages and was called to the scene to help Bascom escape after he had killed the victim, according to detectives. Carlos did not deserve to die. You got a pack of animals who once again illustrate that human life is cheap on the street. A road rage incident where a man does what he's supposed to do, notify the police, cooperate with the system, and his thanks was to end up with multiple bullets in his head, just killed outside of, outside of his home. Bascom was arrested Wednesday by Orlando police at the Orlando International Airport, where he had a one-way ticket to Texas. Authorities feared he was getting ready to leave the country. McFoley and Rios Roque were arrested Tuesday. The former was picked up by the U.S. Marshals Service. He was working for a moving company in Orlando. Rios Roque, meanwhile, was arrested by local authorities while driving on Interstate 4. The case remains open. Coming up, the story about a son convicted of murdering his father and mother 15 years apart. It's considered one of the strangest double murders in the history of Central Florida. A man goes missing on September 10th, 1988. Then 15 years later, on that same date, the man's wife goes missing. And now, 15 years after the wife's disappearance, I get to tell you the story about the murders of Richard and Marilyn Cananan. In the summer of 2003, 65-year-old Marilyn Cananan seemed to be living a happy life. She worked as an administrative assistant at an aviation firm in Orlando. Her co-workers adored her. She was also the mother of three and a grandmother of three. It was September 2003, 15 years earlier, her husband, a raging alcoholic who beat her and her children and even sexually abused his children, had disappeared without a trace. Due to the years of abuse he inflicted on his family and also his penchant for leaving the house for days or weeks at a time, his family never reported him missing. In fact, when it seemed he was gone for good, the Cananan family never acted as though they missed him. They were even joyful that he was gone, according to neighbors. Marilyn's oldest daughter, Cheryl, got married and then had children of her own. Her younger daughter, Stacy, found a domestic partner and seemed happy. The only source of worry came from Marilyn's oldest child, her only son, Richard Jr., who they all knew as Ricky. He was married and then got divorced. Then he started living the life of a nomad. Ricky would go away for extended periods and would barely keep in touch. But in September 2003, he was living with his sister, Stacy, and her partner. The two of them encouraged Ricky to move in with them earlier that year. The family was together on holidays. All seemed to be going swimmingly, at least from those looking from the outside. Then on the 10th of September, Marilyn never showed up for work. She had a reputation for being punctual and responsible. It wasn't like her to not show up without calling first. Marilyn's oldest daughter, Cheryl, went to go check on her. There was no trace of Marilyn. 
15 years to the date that her husband went missing, Marilyn vanished. Suddenly, all three children got an ominous feeling that their father had returned. At least that's what they conveyed to the Orange County Sheriff's Office. Detectives there couldn't believe how spooked the kids were and how much they hated their father. Richard Cannanon Sr. had suffered a back injury as a young man and was unable to work. He was an alcoholic. Sometimes he'd start guzzling vodka before the kids even woke up. Based on reports, if the kids walked into the kitchen to have breakfast and saw their dad drinking coffee, odds were good they wouldn't be subjected to his wrath. But if they walked in and saw him drinking from a bottle, they knew they were in for a bad day. Kananen was reckless with his children. He'd play Russian roulette with them, only he'd point the muzzle of the revolver at the heads of his children. No one knew other than Richard Sr. whether he really had a bullet in the cylinder. Regardless, the kids were frozen with fear each time he did it. One summer day, while the family lived in Maine, when Cheryl was eight and when Stacy was six, their father took them out to the lake. Richard Sr. took the boat to a dock and told the girls to climb on. Then he took the boat out. He was maybe 50 or more yards from the dock. He taunted the girls from the boat, saying they wouldn't go home unless they swam to him. Otherwise, they would sit there all night and freeze. The girls didn't know how to swim. Scared they would never get off the dock, they got into the water and taught themselves how to paddle, and they made it to that boat. One of the girls would later say the expression of her dad's face was one of disappointment. It was like he hated his own children, and they reciprocated those feelings. The girls were sexually abused. So was Ricky, according to media stories. All of the children and their mother were regularly beaten, and Ricky got the worst of it, especially when he tried to intervene and protect his mother or sisters. Sometimes Ricky's father would chain him to a tree and make him spend the night outside. Stacy Kananen, who still lives in Florida, declined to be interviewed for this podcast. But here she is describing, in an episode of Catch My Killer, which aired on Investigation Discovery, what her brother was like growing up. He was always like the protector, the family protector. He would he would get involved in everything he could get involved to protect us. He did it for everybody. If, if dad was swinging, he was right in between it as much as he could be. He protected my mother more at some times because I remember several times that he would he would get really hurt in between their fights. And I remember one fight in particular where my father told my brother, if you get in the middle of this, I'm just going to take the gun and shoot you. Richard Sr. would move his family often to avoid detection. If he got the sense someone at his kid's school might report something to child services, he'd waste no time relocating to another state. He would usually pack up the car and go in the middle of the night. The Kananen family lived in Minnesota, Arkansas, Maine, California, and then Central Florida. In 1988, Richard moved his family to the Orlando area. Not long after that, he disappeared. Then 15 years later, Marilyn disappeared. Orange County Sheriff's detectives interviewed the children after they reported Marilyn missing. 
Those detectives decided to start searching for Richard Sr. first. Maybe if they locate him, they can find clues to Marilyn's whereabouts. But they got nowhere. They were astounded at just how little people cared about Richard Sr. Nobody had anything nice to say about him. Nobody missed him. But it was a different story with Marilyn. There was one child in particular who was very troubled by her disappearance. It was her oldest daughter, Cheryl. She kept calling the sheriff's office for updates. There were none to be had. Eventually, authorities decided to take a closer look at Marilyn's finances. And they noticed some activity. Someone had been cashing checks. According to the Social Security Administration, checks were still going to Richard. They continued being sent to the house 15 years after his disappearance. Marilyn, apparently, had been cashing them. Detectives thought maybe Marilyn had been committing Social Security fraud. The total amount she had reportedly stolen was $100,000. Ricky indicated to police there had been some letters sent to his mother. He said the Social Security Administration and the Internal Revenue Service were investigating her. Ricky also told his sisters that was the reason mom left. She knew she was being investigated and fled to avoid being arrested. Detectives reached out to the Social Security Administration. There was no such investigation. The IRS also was unaware that the checks were being cashed fraudulently. Detectives kept talking to Cheryl, who seemed to be the most cooperative among Marilyn's three children. She disclosed something that detectives found interesting. Her mother was about to inherit a significant amount of money from her father, who had just passed. The nest egg was worth about $250,000. Marilyn had lived modestly. She had money in the bank. It was there for the taking, and detectives noticed that someone had been taking it. They weren't thinking it was Marilyn. They believed the money was getting siphoned off by Ricky and Stacy. They noticed Richard had been spending a lot of money and telling friends he had recently won the lottery. Stacy, meanwhile, had been seen driving around in a new car. Richard got a new driver's license, but what was interesting about it is that he dropped the junior from his name. On paper, he could easily be mistaken for Richard Sr. Detectives said that's how he got access to his mother's accounts. Also, Marilyn's house was in her husband's name, so it looked like Ricky now owned his mother's house. Eventually, investigators froze Marilyn's accounts. A woman called the bank claiming to be Marilyn, wondering why the account was frozen and whether it could be reactivated. Detectives were convinced that woman was Stacy. A rift was forming between Cheryl and her two siblings. Ricky and Stacy held a yard sale. They were selling off some of their mother's valuables, and that incensed their sister. Then came a bombshell. Cheryl's 12-year-old son told his mother that Ricky said some disturbing things to him. Ricky had allegedly told the boy that he played a part in the murder of his father. His father was shot at close range. 
Ricky also told his nephew that he had always resented his mother for not protecting him. Ricky also told the boy that he wouldn't hesitate to harm Cheryl if she didn't stop asking so many questions. Cheryl called detectives. By that time, law enforcement was convinced that Ricky killed his parents, and they were suspicious that Stacy helped him. They called them both in for an interview. They sat in separate rooms and answered questions. After they were interviewed, they were allowed to sit together alone in the same room. Detectives kept the camera on them, hoping they'd let their guard down and utter something. The siblings never said anything all that incriminating, but they also did nothing to let themselves off the hook. Investigators let them go. What happened next changed everything. Ricky had rented storage units in town, and Ricky drove him and his sister to the property and pulled the car into one of the units. Then he lowered the door. Deputies were surveilling Ricky and Stacy, and they noticed they had been at the storage unit for an unusually long time. So deputies searched it. They heard an engine running inside one of the units. Deputies pried open the door, and the smell of exhaust hit them immediately. Stacy and Ricky Kananen had tried to kill themselves through carbon monoxide poisoning. Here is Stacy telling Investigation Discovery why she went along with her brother's decision to commit suicide together. I don't think I was thinking at all. I think it was a total revert back to my childhood. Here's a male figure. Here's somebody older than me. Here's somebody much larger than me saying, okay, let's go. And it's just, you just do it. You don't think about it. You don't second guess yourself because here's your authority figure telling you to go ahead and do it. Each of them wrote a suicide note. Stacy's note was ambiguous. She never used the words kill or murder. She stated she and her brother had played a part in their mother leaving. Ricky, on the other hand, was more specific in his letter. He stated that he had killed his mother and father. Stacy was sent to a mental hospital. Ricky was sent to jail, but his mental competency would be called into question. Time and again, he was declared unfit to stand trial. Then in 2007, after his sanity was restored, according to the state, Ricky decided to enter a plea. He actually pleaded no contest to two counts of murder. More on that later. Richard Sr. was actually dug up from underneath his own garage. His skull and bones were found eight feet below ground. Marilyn's remains were found buried underneath a rock garden on Stacy's property. Both sets of remains were found in December 2003, less than four months after Marilyn was declared missing. And it took years before Ricky finally entered his plea. Stacy told authorities she had no idea her mother's body was buried on her property. She also said her brother confessed to her about killing their mother the same day they attempted suicide. That was when she found out. The sheriff of Orange County at the time, Kevin Barry, told the media, quote, Needless to say, this is a very bizarre case for Orange County. Detectives continued reviewing financial records and determined that Ricky had diverted $60,000 from his mother's trust fund to his personal bank accounts. The money was transferred through checks that were payable to Richard and Stacy and the businesses they controlled. 
That's what was reported in the Orlando Sentinel. So when it came time to sentence Ricky to prison, he received 30 years. But that wasn't the end of the case. After he signed on the dotted line and agreed to the sentence, Ricky told authorities that his sister helped him murder both his father and mother. Here is Senior Detective Mark Hussey of the Orange County Sheriff's Office talking to Investigation Discovery about what Ricky told him after his plea agreement was signed. Ricky tells me that Stacy told him at some point that his father was in, in bed asleep and she went in and shot him in the back of the head. And in fact, uh, when we did the autopsy, there was a small uh, caliber bullet hole in the back of the skull and we were able to recover a bullet from inside that skull. As for Marilyn, Ricky told investigators that his sister tased her mother while Ricky duct taped her mouth. Then he suffocated her. Both of them buried their mother in Stacy's own backyard. Ricky made this confession while in shackles and in the judge's chambers immediately after his sentencing. Years earlier, Stacy and her domestic partner had moved to a nudist resort in Hudson, located about 45 miles north of St. Petersburg. Stacy's partner's family owned it, and the two were living a life of seclusion, far enough away from what was going on in Orlando. But Stacy never could fully escape it. While in Hudson, she befriended Lisa Bonice, a former journalist and published author. The two became fast friends, and Bonice would later collaborate with Stacy on a book titled Fear of Our Father. Here is Bonice speaking to me about Stacy's involvement in her brother's case and how her life drastically changed after her brother entered his plea. She was going to depositions uh, because they had built a case against him. He had sort of said from time to time, oh, Stacey helped me, blah, blah, blah. But there was no evidence and nobody really, you know, there, there was no way to bring her into this. So, you know, she was going to be a witness against him. And finally, like four years later, right before he went to trial where she was set to testify, he signed a plea agreement um, and pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 30 years. And then after that plea, that's when he told uh, the police and the, the DA, Stacy helped me. And he laid out his story of how Stacy was a part of the whole thing. In May 2007, Stacy was arrested on two counts of murder. To this day, it remains a mystery as to why Ricky implicated his sister when he did. He was getting nothing in return. Detectives didn't understand it, but they had always suspected Stacy was involved, so they didn't seem to want to question it either. Here is Stacy describing to Investigation Discovery her reaction to the news of what her brother told detectives after his 30-year sentence. That was just about as close to a heart attack as I've ever come in my entire life. I just can't believe this is happening. This is just totally just ridiculous. I kept a belief, you know, in my own innocence, even if nobody else believed in me, um, that I knew I would be okay. I knew that the truth would come out, and I knew that I would be okay. 
Benice said the state's case against Stacy was flawed from the start. It all hinged on the testimony of someone seemingly incapable of telling the truth. But when I was like researching for the book, I read this entire deposition and he told a couple different stories. And one of the stories in there was that he did make it all up. So, so there were a couple different versions of his story. In fact, during Stacy's trial, her defense attorney said he's told five different stories, and she laid out every single one of them. There was another twist to the story. According to investigators, Stacy and Ricky had help in the murder of their father, their mother, Marilyn. Detectives said Stacy shot him. Her mother called Ricky to the house. When he showed up, he found his father's corpse wrapped in bed linens. The three of them stuffed the body in a freezer, and then later that freezer got buried under the garage. Detectives said the same children who helped their mother hide Richard Sr.'s body turned against her and killed her 15 years later. Marilyn's body also had been stuffed into a freezer and buried. In fact, when Marilyn's skeleton was recovered, two metal darts consistent with a stun gun were found in her chest area. Detectives were told by Ricky that Stacy deployed the stun gun on her mother. Stacy stood trial in March 2010, more than six and a half years after her mother's murder. The state declined a prosecutor for her father's murder for lack of evidence. So Stacy was tried for only one murder charge. Here is Benice describing to me Stacy's mindset during trial. Uh, well, of course she was terrified uh, because, I mean, we all know that our, our justice system is imperfect and that bad things can happen to innocent people. And she knew very well that she could get the death penalty. Uh, it, was a, it was a real possibility and it was just fortunate that she ended up with an excellent defense attorney um, and that happened because Rick was assigned a uh, public defender and when it came time for Stacy to need an attorney they would have normally appointed her a public defender but because her brother had a public defender that would have been a conflict of interest for their office so she was assigned uh, a pro bono attorney and ended up with Diana Tennis who thank God was an excellent attorney and did a, a wonderful job for her. Otherwise, she may very well be in jail for the rest of her life right now if that turn of events hadn't, you know, happened for her. By the time the trial started, Benice had already begun beckoning her friend to let her help her write a book about her life. Benice said there were various reasons why this was such a riveting story to her. The story had so many, oh, human angles, a man's inhumanity to man, and what causes people to snap, and how do you react to things like this? I mean, just learning how Stacy, as a young child, was able to cope with the horrible things that were happening to her, and how she managed to grow up to be a really good person in spite of you know, she, she by all rights could have turned into, you know, somebody who, who did snap and commit crimes, but she managed to not do that. And I was always so impressed by the fact that she turned out to be such a, a really honest, I mean, to a fault, a really good person. And that's one of the reasons that it was easy to believe that she really didn't do this, because 
you know, just getting to know her over those years, and I got her to got to know her very well. It just became so obvious that she really didn't do this. Stacy testified at her own trial. She said attempting suicide seemed like the only logical decision for her at the time because she was afraid that detectives would go after her and her partner because they lived in the home where her mother had been buried. Her testimony was emotional, but she denied all involvement in Marilyn's murder. Jurors deliberated for a couple hours, and they found her not guilty. Right up until those words were said in court, Stacy was fearful it could go the other way. I mean, there there was some stuff that the the prosecutor brought up that even had Stacy worried. She's like, "Oh my God, this, this isn't sounding good." Because you know they did build a case against her. It just wasn't overwhelming evidence. When you looked at the you know all of the evidence, it became very clear that she wasn't guilty. The, the stuff that scared her was like they had a, a handwriting uh, analyst that came up and said yes, Stacy did uh, probably did uh, sign these checks, probably did write these things uh, but there was also evidence that showed that Rick had taken uh, documents of hers with her hand, with her signature on them and so it would have been easy for him to have written her name instead uh so up until the last minute it was it was pretty scary she was she was terrified that she was going to either go to jail for the rest of her life or, or get the death penalty at first stacy was not interested in writing a book she simply wanted to go home and resume her life but as is usually the case whenever a high-profile murder defendant gets acquitted that person's life never returns to normal so Stacy sought counseling and eventually worked with Benice on a book. It was published in 2013, three years after her trial. Benice said the book did cathartically dispel some of Stacy's sadness, but not all of it. That's something that a lot of people, when, when the book came out, a lot of the reviews uh, were people saying, how could she possibly defend her mother? Uh, if, if that was my kids having this happen to them, I would move them across the country. I would kill him. But unless you're actually in somebody's shoes, you don't know how you'll behave. And Marilyn was just as severely abused as the children were, and they were all under threat of death. They had no doubt at all that their dad would kill them. So they were all terrified of him, and Marilyn, in Stacy's eyes, did what she could to protect her kids, but there really wasn't much she could do. Ricky Kananen is now 62 years old. He is eligible for release in May 2030. By then, he'll be 74 years old. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week when I will discuss the slaying of 12-year-old Carolyn Sullivan, who was kidnapped from her bus stop on September 20th, 1978, in West Volusia County. I'll talk to at least one of the cold case detectives working that investigation. Join us then. You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer. 
or email him at tony.holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sutton Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal.